Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And then um, resurrection happened. And now the story that, as Matt was talking about, the story that I've heard in a lot of ways, and I've read in people's memoirs and testimonies and heard in sermons and read in the Bible and the story I've told myself and heard Christian friends tell me, now it's dropped from the head into the heart. And resurrection is something that happened to me after going through some form of death. The colors in which I see the world are more vivid and more alive. The colors in which I see the world are more gentle and more peaceable. And the colors in which I see the world are more whimsical and regenerative and life-giving and full of possibility that I cannot define. Direction seems to be much more powerful than death uh, because of having passed through through death and you know into a, some form of resurrection through Jesus's story and grace. Understanding the story and where the Bible is taking us is something that takes a lot of elements and then also life to keep pulling us toward that mystery in a way that we're starting to make more and more life-giving steps and so more and more life-giving seeds. Good. I was thinking about as Tyler was telling the story, and I've certainly gone through my own process of death and resurrection with all sorts of different um, addictions and problems and things like that. So I appreciate you. I love the way you're um, describing being able to see possibilities, uh, the sort of the, the whimsical, the way that you describe kind of like the, you know, the possibilities and the grandeur and sort of like the logos that pervades all of creation with new eyes. And that's, that's a beautiful way to tell that story. And I was um, thinking about how David was talking about George W. Bush, you know, and it's like, and I understand I used to be, it's like, you know, back many years ago, it was like, I was, would have probably said something very similar. And I think that what was happening there and what often happens and maybe this is how we can, a way that we can understand the Antichrist, Paul, is that is that there's a conflation of stories that we begin to conflate, you know, that really what the, the scripture really is a counter narrative. And it's so important to say, well, God really is telling a different story about resurrection, not death. But once we start to conflate the stories and to say, well, no, actually violence and Christianity can go together. Or you see, you see what I'm saying? We begin to sort of conflate those two narratives. They, or maybe like nationalism and Christianity can, can kind of go together. You know, we can make these two things work together, these two stories. Maybe, you know, materialism. You could do this in an infinite number of ways, maybe. But maybe the most dangerous ways are sort of to conflate the stories of, say, like violence or what Tyler was saying with, you know, redemptive, like the myth of redemptive violence and sort of conflating that maybe with our atonement theory, with our theology. So in other words, like, I think that the story that God is telling in Christ is something that's very different than the story of like redemptive violence right they're like well no actually god the way that the whole thing works with god is that he does redemptive violence you know jesus he you know he beats jesus to death and he spends his anger it's all good you know uh, god gets it all out or whatever you know and so like what we're, we conflate it becomes an anti-christian story paul was saying that the you know the antichrist might be sitting you know right next to you in church there and it's it's a scary thought because it's like I don't know, maybe the guy sitting next to you struggles like with sin, like we all do, you know, maybe it's porn, maybe it's whatever. It's like, okay, well, I don't know that that is necessarily like the Antichrist, but what I do think is like the Antichrist is conflating like a different worldview or ideology, the story of Christian theology, the, the theology of love and of peace and of kingdom theology, and saying, 
well, actually, you know, this nationalism and this violence and this imperialism, whatever, it kind of fits into the Christian narrative. And actually, we're going to we're going to use the Christian narrative as a way to perpetuate, you know, the the ideology. So there's a particularly sort of, you know, Kierkegaard talks about the demonic being unleashed in a particularly sort of like vicious way when there's sort of this conflation of stories. And so it's so important, I think, for us to recognize the difference between so whether you believe that Genesis three is literal or not, or you know Samson, you know did he did he get his strength from his hair being long? You know uh, was Jonah swallowed by the great fish? These are all to me like beside the point. It's like oh, maybe I don't know maybe, but the point seems to be that in the actual story that that's being told in Jonah, that Jonah saying, "See, I knew it. You're a God full of mercy and compassion, and you, you know, and this is the reason why I didn't want to go preach to my enemies." You know, it's like the story ends with Jonah sitting on a hill, and it's like he never does get it. I don't think you know. It's it's, it's so cool to hear someone's story like Tyler's. He goes, "Man, I can see how how true." It's like we can't really see how true the story is until we inhabit it. You know, until we actually walk through it. I think. I think that most people aren't learning that, you know, I, it's not something I learned really until I met Paul. It was like, actually, the, Christianity is telling a completely different story about the way that the world really is. It's a different um, way to do theology. Tyler, um, I have, uh, I'm, I'm in a new position, work at uh, Kennesaw State University now, and um, I've been doing instructional design full-time for about five years at another institution. I did academics in another at a Christian institution. There's a different direction. I'll go with that here in a second. I work with seven other designers, and instructional design is a very creative process, and it, designers can be kind of proprietary. We're all kind of new. Several of us are new in the department, and so we're all trying to get to know each other, but we're working remotely. So you have to be very intentional when you haven't worked with any of your coworkers except like this. You have to be very, very intentional about the way you communicate and they've gotten used to hearing me say, well, don't worry, I lost my ego in the divorce, which probably is not 100% accurate. I've still got an ego. My story didn't, didn't end up quite like yours, but resurrection happened to me anyway, and something better came out of it. I'm a little disjointed. My face is still a little sore. I had a tooth pulled out of my head yesterday, so I apologize for being a little foggier than usual. One of the things that we were talking about institutions earlier, the disharmony with one another and with God, with creation, the tension of institutions, I, I find myself using the term institutions a lot just because people find so much comfort in being able to identify themselves with some kind of brick and mortar or some kind of established institution I always read back into it Nietzsche, who, as soon as you've killed God, um, we work to get power over and against each other until we meet something that is more powerful than us, and then we try to side up with that thing, that person, to get power. And that's how he really saw the way life is supposed to work. He was building on Schopenhauer, whose primary drive was the will to survive, Nietzsche said survival is not enough. It's, it's, to, it's to overcome the other, to have power over one another. And I think that's what institutions make us feel like there's a, there's a power over one another. And maybe that's rooted in survival and maybe it's, maybe it's not. I don't know. I always kind of assume it is. So we're always kind of looking to make things an institution or to trust an institution. But those things are always inherently destructive because they're always trying to get power. 
over the other institutions or the people outside of the institutions or maintain themselves. Focused on resurrection is I think the direction I, I felt like we, we have to always hang on to is death is certainly a part of the human experience, but it, for Christ, it's not definitive. For people in Christ, it's not definitive of the human experience anymore. And I feel like outside of Christ, death is the definitive the definitive part of our existence. Whether or not we were ever going to live forever. It's something that you all made me think about in the discussion of um, the Genesis account, the cross, and just being image bearers of God and what that what that means and how it ties into this whole discussion, you know, as opposed to looking at being an image bearer of God because in creation, I have this spark of divine nature in me as, you know, you've kind of referred to in some of your talks, Paul. Not that you agree with that, more and disagree with that, that it was in unity, in community, that God created the male and female in his image. So the image bearing is not necessarily about having some piece of God in me. It's more about that idea of unity um, and community. That made me think of what you were saying about, about the cross, that maybe I can think of it in a way that... I'm not necessarily created in the image of God, but that I'm more resurrected in the image of God, that in as much as I participate in his divine nature um, through the spirit, I'm not discussing the spirit's involvement in all this, that that is where the image of God lies. So it's not something that is just inherent within me as a human, but it's inherent in my participation in God as being the truly human one. So then it made me think like with this whole discussion of like, you know, God is spirit, not in necessarily a platonic idea, but that that is his nature. It gets into Ephesians chapter two and verse five where the first four verses are great too in this discussion. But he says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and going off of some of the discussions that you've had in the past, Paul, and what you've taught um, that we have life, we're made alive through the Spirit, that that is the gift of life to us. That is what the Spirit does for us, is it gives us life. And then you jump over to chapter 4 in Ephesians, and um, he's talking about being worthy of the call of which you've been called. And then after the list that he goes through of how to do that, he talks about preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So then that, for me, ties back into that idea of Genesis and the creation account where um, there is unity in the original two, but then that unity is broken. I, again, I'm mumbling through this because I'm just trying to make sense of the layers of onions being peeled through my thinking of how the cross and Jesus as the truly human one is the image bearer of God. And then it's through the spirit that we participate in that and become image bearers of God. So I'm not just naturally created as an image bearer of God on my own. It requires my participation in him. Yeah. I always um, I always thought of image bearing in terms of being a marred image and a restored image. The image of a god uh, when a person worshiped a little idol in their house that wasn't they didn't think of that as the God they were worshiping, but an image of the God. Any honor that you gave to the image was seen as being given to the God. Any dishonor that you gave to the image was a dishonor that was given to God. Which makes a lot more sense out of when Jesus says things like, well, 
whatever you've done to the least of these, I take that as you're doing it to me. If you want, what is the greatest commandment? Love God and love your neighbor, because that is an image of God. Now, these are marred images in that something happened to them, and they are they can be restored. That's the language that always made sense out of the image, uh, the imagery of God for me. I'm more asking because I just it was just thoughts that I had because I'd never really heard of the cross reference, you know, death, burial, resurrection, and even ascension. It's been more of an internalized, individualized thing um, from my experience. So whenever I hear you, Jason, talk about those things, then again, it makes me think, and maybe this is what you're saying, that those good things, you're loving God and loving your neighbor, loving yourself, that those are all done through the spirit, that it, you know, that's, that's still you participating in the image of God through him. Again, we're running back to, to Genesis. We've already kind of established that there are ways to read that that aren't helpful. But like Matt said, there is a truth in the story that makes the story necessary. And part of that is that the intent of God to have created us in his image is to be relational, to be self-sacrificial, to be, to be God-like. I used to draw this picture in my classes, and it doesn't make any sense here, but I used to draw a circle, and I used to put a G in the center, and I'd draw little lines in a little circle, and I'd put a self here and a others here, and I would say, you know, we are little images of God. And I stole this from Bonhoeffer, where that sin is the, the removal of God from that source of life, and to put ourselves in this place, in which case... We kick God out here and try to make God an image of us. And now our relationships with one another don't work right, and our relationships with God don't work right, and our relationships with nature doesn't work right. God, of course, is still the source of life and the source of knowledge of good and evil. And what happens is the sun comes into our sphere of life out of that center and shows us what an image of God really is by bearing a cross. I used to draw a little cross over it. And now when we follow, we start to restore the image of God. Where And Bonhoeffer says, whereas before God made people in his image, now our likeness to God is a stolen one. What the son does by removing himself from that place, emptying himself, is invite us to empty ourselves with him and remove ourselves from that position. That in itself is the restoring ourselves to the image of God by not trying to take his place and restoring that image. By bearing the cross, we look more like God. So Jesus is human God in a way that following him restores the broken image of God. Yes, the Spirit is here to help. The Holy Spirit is, is working within us to help us follow in my mind, all of, all of what Christ does and calls us to be is a restoration of the image of God. Jason, I've seen you do that illustration, and it is a very effective one drawn out. Please forgive me for being so disoriented today. I'm, I've got a great big gaping hole right back here. We're all sympathetic. I'm trying not to be empathetic. I don't want to get that close to that much pain. No, it, it, it's not really painful. It's just weird. Like, I could hear it cracking when they pulled it out of my, my head. Man, there are worse things happening to better people. So I, I, I'm trying not to feel sorry for myself, but it's got me kind of foggy still today. 
I think my blood pressure went up to like 180 over 120 or something. Oh my. It just could not calm me down. So they kept turning up the gas. They told me later that they were giving me more of that gas than your dentist can legally give you. Only the oral surgeon can give you this much. And there was one point where I've never been on drugs or like on acid or anything, but you know how in the movies they always show things getting kind of funky and noises getting kind of funky when the people are on acid. That's what it was like. Like all the, the sound of the radio kind of, this lady was coming in and out. And I thought, I have no idea where I am. I thought I was going to die. Glad you're it was just a tooth. It's, it's just a tooth. Anyway. Jason, how come you've taken all your clothes off? Just teasing you, pretend, pretending you're still hallucinating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I'm just not very quick, Tim. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know, it's weird. When I had my uh, colonoscopy a few weeks back when they were testing, they, they would not let me out of the room until my wife came to get me because you're legally impaired for 24 hours. And believe it or not, they actually use fentanyl in, as part of the thing. It's called a conscious sedation. And I don't remember a thing, but apparently it also has some amnesia effect as well. So you kind of forget what happened. Yeah. But it's pretty cool. It, no pain at all. I was going to say one thing in response, and that is that, and, and Matt, you may want to chime in on this, that in image bearing, I, I presume there's a different way of reading this in, an, in the early church. And that is that if we take creation as an unfinished account that is being finished through Christ, so too image bearing was always meant to be culminating in the person and work of Christ. So that it's not simply that we've lost an image that we fully had prior, but that the purposes of creation and image bearing are being fulfilled. And sin then is not the main part of this story. It, it is a blip in the story, but the story continues as then we are receiving this image, not restoring so much one that we had previously. Yeah, so the early church talks about it, I think, and well, the, you know, the Orthodox Church still talks about it in terms of theosis or div you know, divinization or union with God, where, you know, we're, you know, and Gregory Nyssa talks about this. Uh, there's a, a neat Greek word, uh, epictasis, which is like an infinite sort of stretching out. The, the fathers were fond of talking about how like Paul said that, you know, sin is sort of a blip in the, in the, you know, story. It's an interruption and it's a glitch in the matrix. Maybe that's not the best analogy, but it's, it's like, it's an interruption, right? Whereas like the, the fullness of Christ is more about love, resurrection, you know, righteousness, justice, peace, you know, kinania, fellowship in this sort of infinite growing up into the fullness of the image of God. So that we're beginning in our baptism and throughout sort of etern eternity, that there's this infinite, so it's hard to think about, right? So it's not finite. It's it's an unlimited, infinite. Because God is, you know, for the for the fathers, it's like the goodness of God, the image of God, you know, is limitless. It's infinite. It's it's something that we can participate in, uh, but it doesn't have any boundaries. You know, the love of God is boundless. The goodness of God is boundless. It's limitless. It's you know, the peace and all the the beauty of God, the wisdom of God. These things are. Um, infinite things and as finite creatures what it would mean for us to be joined or divinized with god is to share in the life of christ but being finite sort of creatures all we can do is participate in that in that life that's already there in that big b being or whatever you know that that stretches out 
forth uh, into eternity. And so baptism is sort of marks our entrance, right? Like that death, you know, marks our entrance uh, into the into the life of God, into the community uh, of God's people. The, the life that Christ has called us to live isn't just for no other reason than to make us like Christ. Like I just read this great quote by uh, St. Simeon, the theologian the other day. And he said, you know, it's not about good works. The point is, is that it is to become like Christ. Like First John says that, you know, we, we must walk as he walked. And so forget about, you know, it's like even if you do all the good works in the world or you reach the summit of virtue, it's like, well, it's still by grace that we're saved. So that's not even really a part of like the, the equation. But the point is to actually become in your being like Christ. It's like you know, Christ doesn't hate people. Christ doesn't have bitterness. Christ, you know, Christ is full of forgiveness and self-control and love and mercy and truth and wisdom and all these different things. And so the point isn't to just like do good works or to not sin. The point is to become imitators, you know, to become that is joined with God in Christ uh, to have the image of humanity fully restored. And I think Paul's right that it's not a return to the garden. Like Tim was saying, like that's that that's some sort of uh, it's a, it's a helpful story, but you know that that the image of of God, you know, Christ, the fathers just teach that the incarnation was always the plan from God before the foundation of the world was for God to become human, to unite humanity with Himself by becoming man, you know, so that God becomes man, so that man can become like you know God, um, so uh, that we don't really have access to the image of God apart from the incarnation of the son of God in our participation in the spirit in his life. To pull everything together, just in my mind, we talked about story and the way the story gets told. And I was thinking of something Jason just said near the end there of how we either look at the God as he is, or we, we, we either create God in our own image or we allow his image to reveal himself. And I think for me, this is where the story really gets off track and really gets distorted is once we look at human violence and then we project that onto God, the story gets told completely differently. Jesus becomes the sacrifice that God needs. So he, Jesus really isn't an example. Now, I know I'm caricaturing some people, but I get this. I see this in a lot of people. He's not an example. He needed to just come to this earth. God to get him on the cross so God can be satisfied. Mm -hmm. And that builds that entire Constantinian institutional power hungry from the top down that is so much of what Christendom has become. We, we share a vocabulary, we share a similar language with people who believe God is violent, but man, the story just gets lived out very differently. And, uh, you know, just a little caricature, if I can say, I, I've got friends who are, even here in Canada, who would be very strongly pro-Republican. And so their attitude is what we have to do is we've got to vote out the Democrats or vote against them. And I'm going, no, no, we need to be crucified by the Democrats. But they, that, that, that is completely foreign to them, that idea of laying our lives down for our enemies, for them. It's no, we have to conquer our enemies. And that's a completely different way the story is told. Yeah. I just think about my own Christian journey that I think that I, you know, beginning when you don't know anything, I had the presumptions that I've come to late in life, but I couldn't have articulated them at 13. And that is that I suddenly felt a oneness with God and nature that I was pursu pursuing. But immediately what through education, 
what I was educated and indoctrinated into, but almost it, it almost fit with my pre-Christian self, you know, growing up watching the, the Westerns. I, I don't know why. The, the, when I was growing up, as all Westerns. The solution to every problem came at the end of the show when Matt Dillon or Have Gun Will Travel, or it didn't matter who it was. Unfortunately, he just had to kill the bad guy. And that solved the problem. You know, you shoot the bad guy. Matt's named after Matt. It was a combination of Matt Dillon, you know, the guy with the white hat, and then and Matt and Matthew, you know, the same Matthew. Oh well, uh, yeah. Who they just you could fuse those two. That's right. That's actually an interesting, uh, that's an interesting <laughs> point. Inflate the two. So uh, a violent Christianity, a redemptive violence. I could, I didn't have those those words, but that's basically what I was indoctrinated into. Uh, institutionally, that's you know when I even in Bible college, I think in seminary, it just became a deeper and deeper indoctrination into redemptive violence. And so I don't know that that there's an alternative. You know, I, I when I talk about the the Antichrist, I don't mean to in some way demonize other people, because I I myself was the source of this Antichrist doctrine. And so I think we have to recognize it's not just a belief system that is harmless. I think it is, in fact, it does violence to people's lives, that their lives then get caught up in this kind of futility that is just obvious, you know, send your children off to die in wars or, you know, you, what you want to train your children to do is uh, teach them karate, you know, get them, get them into the mixed martial arts so they can sure, be sure and beat up the other children. Or we're just surrounded by this. We're just inundated with it. And I'm just, I'm really thinking of me. It is so destructive in a personal sense but just in a real world sense that once you, once you have this thing. And so I think that's the power that we're up and against. And it is this, this notion of a redemptive violence. The cross of Christ is not redemptive violence in spite of the fact that that's what bad theology would do to the cross. Paul, you did a lecture or two, you know, in basic bib theo, I think it was, um, what is theology? Those are like critical things. And I was thinking about David Rawls, his point earlier was about, you know, he said, well, how can we, you know, you can read the, the Chronicles of Narnia and everybody kind of understands what it's about. I mean, you might have like a nuanced interpretation here and there, but everybody kind of gets it that Aslan, you know, whatever, you know, that's actually a really good point. You know, I remember asking David, so I was like, how can, you know, two very well-intentioned Christians sit down and go, and one person comes to understand God as like this predestining sort of like, you know, angry force, you know, sending people to hell. And then the same, you know, the same sort of truth seeker, if someone earnestly sits down and reads like the same scriptures and discovers a God who doesn't have like bad plans for humanity, but has like good plans. And, you know, um, that free will is a real thing. And I'm not really sure that he provided like too much of an answer, but, but I think that what you were saying in your lecture, Paul, is about the the theology is being holistic that is that it's that what we're trying to do is integrate all of reality into sort of a cohesive narrative uh where it seems like the stories that the that the world tells us you know is sort of a disintegration right it's like a 
the whole story is one of a sort of like disintegration. Whereas like, I think that the resolution that you've been trying to help us come to with theology is like this sort of shalom wholeness where there really is like an integration of all things. I would just say like into the life of God, you know, that the unity with God and what that must mean then is to sort of unite ourselves with the good, the true, the beautiful, of course, with Christ, you know, as the embodiment of those, of those um, transcendentals. But that ultimately what we're all trying to do is to uh, understand reality theologically in a, in a holistic sort of integrated way where we can, you know, it doesn't really matter if we're, if we're talking politics, economics, psycho, you know, psychology, sociology, anthropology, all these different things. We're using that story as the lens, you always say, you know, by which we kind of narrate these other facets of human life. Uh, and I think that that's really the only way to see Christ in all things, you know, is to, is to, you you know, like Tyler was saying earlier, that's like, oh, you know, I can see the sort of like the logos that's infusing all things in a new way. The more I, the more I inhabit, you know, the resurrection and the story of the, of the resurrection. And so there's always this pool, I think, for us to, to believe that maybe the story that our flesh is telling us or the enemy may be telling us or the world is telling us. And that means it's a lie. <laughs> you know, it's, we, the temptation really is to sort of disintegrate our thinking. And, but I think the hard work of theology is to sort of integrate everything into uh, sort of a, a unity uh, in Christ. Oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, the contrast between disintegration and integration. The disintegration is our is kind of our natural tendency, and integration is the integration of love. That this just outpouring of love for the world, for other people. I don't know why I've been thinking a lot about John Lewis. I I didn't follow his career that much, but he just he just seemed to exemplify, you know, that that kind of that kind of love. Paul's getting a, a call from a bill collector. It sounds like unavailable. <laughs> She's my girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the Imago Day, as you're talking about unification with Christ as the hard work of theology, the singular story, the ontology, the the nature of of being for humans, the Imago Day is a central facet of our composition, the Genesis story, but sons and daughters of God throughout the entire canon are humans. I don't recall animals being referred to as children of God, alone in some kind of way, I suppose they are. But so what I'm saying is I'm not, I couldn't tell if, if what we're saying is that we only have the Imago Dei, the image of God, when we open ourselves to God's Spirit and allow Him to be in and through us. Jason might have been saying we do have this sort of internal composition, this part of our ontology, our very being that is the image of God. And maybe it's both and, you know, from my perspective at this point, it's important for me to affirm that there is this part of us, this part of our composition as humans that has the Imago Dei following the fall for a person to be turning their shoulder towards God consciously or not, but in their mind and in their behavior, they are a sickly Imago Dei, which leads to a lot of discomfort and depression and all kinds of things. However, when they turn themselves toward God, that Imago Dei, it's kind of like a dandelion. Like, without the sun, the dandelion won't open up. But when the sun comes, it opens up, and it follows the sun, and it accepts that energy. And that's a part of what the dandelion 
mine is. I said perceiving the Mago Day is how we are a part of the image of God, you know, only, and that we don't also have some sort of design in us that is part Imago Day. I guess my concern is how do we account for the unfolding of Christ's story, that beautiful, redemptive, loving, you know, whimsical, powerful story? How do we account for that unfolding throughout humanity? This dominion story, this um, myth of redemptive violence, that's very powerful that we talk about and we return to frequently and is all around us. It needs to be countered by a robust, healthy, vibrant story of Christ that is unfolding, that we're a really cool thing that we're picking up from Jason and Paul in the videos, this unfolding of creation, this unfolding of Christ, and our unfolding within that, collaborating, contributing to it. To hear that and feel it and sense that positive, peaceable, loving story in the midst of violent cacophony, to me it's important to affirm that the human species, that humans have that that little imago day within them, because there's a lot of people that they don't have, they haven't had their. If we look at it from some of the other comments earlier, there hasn't been this activation of their imago day through Christ. They haven't not not verbally, not consciously. They haven't heard it or they haven't chosen it. And yet, there's a portion of a lot of people in societies. A lot of people have a portion of themselves that is being lived in a redemptive way, in a healing way, in an artistic way. And that is special, and that is creative at an order and a level that is not seen in other creatures. If you take Jackson Pollock, he, he had a terrible end to his life. Died in a car crash, just alcoholic and bipolar, and quite miserable in a lot of ways. But the brilliance of a certain part of his life and his art, by a lot of people's, you know, opinion and experiences spoke to something more. I have a friend who is the, one of the most Christ-like people I've, I've ever met, and yet in a lot of ways he is, and, and yet he turned away from the church after a lot of bad experiences as a young adult. Yeah, he's more Christian than a lot of people, than most people who claim to be Christians that I've met. So there's an accounting to be made and to be considered for the level of Imago Dei creativeness, and expression and redemptive behavior that's found, I think, in humanity and can be affirmed in humanity. And I feel like when Jesus, if you take the Gospels and the many times that he would look at someone and say, come and follow me, I, I think there's a real element of when God turns toward us as we have our attention on him and he calls to us, he calls out, he call, he's calling out from us something unique and special and, and driven within us that I think could very well be connected to this Imago Dei portion of our ontology, of our being. And that when you combine that with the unification of ourselves in the Spirit of God and in Christ and in the Church, that perhaps you have that full humanity, that full redemption. And yet I, I, I have this desire to affirm and to believe, and maybe I'm off in this. I have a desire to affirm belief that there is element and redemptive behaviors uh, observable in people in general, um, regardless of their their uh, cognitive awareness or their pronouncement of following Jesus. Absolutely. So yeah, that's that's something I'm thinking about. Like, are we saying both and? <laughs> are we, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I would just call. I would call whatever. I would call what you're what you're talking about spirit. Uh, and as much as we have life and being that we share in the in the life and being of God, that even in as much as we exist, we 
share in the existence of God. We only have our being by participation. We have, we've been created as God's sort of spirit flesh beings. And uh, we really do participate in the life of God. A lot of our scriptures, translations, just presume to give the spirit the capital S as if it's always referring to the Holy Spirit. But Hart makes a great case. I mean, you can read this, and he says that that's not necessarily true. It's actually quite vague most times. Whenever uh, there is, you know, there are times where uh, in the New Testament, clearly it seems like the, the Holy Spirit is being referred to as you know, the third person of the Trinity or whatever. But most of the times it's pretty vague. You know, it's like the small S spirit that seems to sort of almost weave in and out of the sort of big S spirit. So for Hart, he's just saying that, well, the way to sort of share in the life of God, whether that's creatively, like Tyler saying, you know, in this sort of mode of justice and goodness and love and artistry, you know, the goodness of, of creation, is then to inhabit what ultimately is the spiritual part of our being, which is also a participation then in the Holy Spirit of God. I think you're right, Tyler. I think, and, and how you quantify that, I don't know. That you find the goodness of God where you find it, in spite of everything, it shines through. Yeah, the goodness of God pervades all of creation. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. you just have to have eyes to see it, like Tyler was saying. And I, I really do think, said the word, you know, like activation or something. It's like, I don't know, maybe that is sort of like regeneration, right? Or like, uh, there, there really does seem to be like a, a, a movement from, um, from death to life, you know, a spiritual rebirth that we can kind of grow up into. Uh, and that that's what eternal life is, is a continual epictosis, a growing up into the infinite uh, goodness and love and life of God, the Holy Church. Yeah, I like that, Matt, right there. Somebody needs to write that down and text me, <laughs> that line. A good, a good line to end on, maybe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.